Let's remember that it was in the middle of the night that Jesus was arrested by the jealous religious leaders. He was abused and interrogated until dawn. And then early that morning, he was tried, and they found him guilty of blasphemy. And then they took him to the Roman governor, uh, Pilate, and there they accused him of something else. They accused him of fomenting rebellion against Rome. Pilate questioned him, found no fault with him, and sought to release him. But the religious leaders began to stir up the crowd. And the crowd threatened to riot if Jesus was not immediately executed. And so Pilate gives in. Pilate gives in to the religious leader's demand and he hands Jesus over to be crucified. And that's where we pick up this morning. Look there at verse 26. As they led him away, meaning as they led Jesus away to be crucified, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian. That's not an alien of some sort. A Cyrenian is someone from the, the African uh, city of Cyrene, and he was coming in from the country, coming into Jerusalem, and they laid the crossbar on him to carry it behind Jesus. So history tells us this, that before the Romans crucified a man, they would strip him naked, they would flog him, which alone could kill someone. They would put onto his back, and they would tie onto him that heavy crossbeam upon which he would be crucified, and they would make him carry it along a circuitous route uh, led by a placard that declared the crime that he had committed, all to serve as a warning to those who would dare to defy the authority of Rome. And that's exactly what they did to Jesus. Matthew 27 tells us that Jesus was flogged. Pilate released Barabbas and after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. And so again, when a prisoner is flogged, they strip him naked, they tie his hands to a post above his head, and then they strike him again and again with a heavy leather whip that had bits of bone and lead woven into the ends. Had two men, one on each side of the victim, did the flogging. And they would strike the man with enough force to embed the bone and lead into the, the flesh of the victim's shoulders and back and legs. And then they would pull it back hard, tearing it free again. The victim's skin was, was torn open. And then as the blows continued to fall, Muscle and bone were exposed and shredded. It was barbaric. It was gruesome. And that was just the beginning of Jesus' physical suffering. After which it says he was led away to be crucified. John's gospel tells us that Jesus started off carrying his own crossbeam 
John 19.17 tells us, carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, or in Aramaic, Golgotha. Um, but Luke tells us Jesus being weakened by the brutality that he had so far endured collapses. And a man out of the crowd, just a random man, is uh, this man Simon from the African city of Cyrene. He, he is forced uh, by the Romans to now carry Jesus' crossbeam for him. Let's stop for a second. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that would have been like for him? And we don't really know much about this, Simon. I wonder, was he aware of all that was taking place around him? I mean, was he a follower of Jesus? Or, or maybe was he a part of the crowd that had been crying out for Jesus to be crucified? Or, or maybe, maybe he hadn't even ever heard of Jesus. He just simply found himself amidst a crowd, pulled out, and given this horrendous task. Here, this innocent man, likely on his way to the temple in order to worship God at the Passover, he is forced to, to turn around, to, to take up a heavy, blood-soaked crossbeam and to carry it back out of the city to this this foul place of death that, that certainly would have left him no longer ceremonially clean. In other words, no longer able to go and enter into the presence of God and worship there in the temple. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. What Simon from Cyrene experienced that day, it is a bit of a dim reflection, a a lesser imitation of what it is that Christ did for us. Think about this. Simon was innocent. Oh, okay, he was only relatively innocent. He was a sinner like you or like me. But Jesus, our Jesus, he was absolutely innocent. He was, understand this, make this clear in your mind, he was without sin. Truly righteous. As we read in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered for sins once for all. Listen to this, don't miss this. The righteous for the unrighteous. He who was without sin took our place and suffered for us. Simon was forced to take up the cross. But our Jesus... Our Jesus took it up willingly. Understand that. He chose the cross. Jesus was no victim. He chose the cross and he chose death. Why? For us. For our sake. Jesus talks about choosing this. In John chapter 10, there... In regard to his life, he says, no one takes it from me, okay? They did not murder Jesus. He says, I lay it down on my own. He was the Lamb of God, come to take the sin of the world. He gave himself as a sacrifice in our place. 
He chose this. Simon, on his way to the temple to worship, to enter into the presence of God, is made ceremonially unclean. And because of that, would have been kept out of the temple, would not have been able to enter in. But our Jesus, our Jesus, who knew no sin, was made to be sin. And he experienced being abandoned by God the Father so that you and I could be made holy and so that we could be welcomed into the presence of God. Hey, think about that. We, we read about this in 2 Corinthians 5 where it tells us that Jesus, uh, the one who did not know sin, became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How unfathomable is that? Both that, that, that Jesus, the one who knew no sin, would be willing to to so be associated with my sin, the scripture says he became sin so that I might become the righteousness of God. He took my sins and he gave me his righteousness. He found himself excluded from the presence of God so that me, who does not deserve it, could be welcomed in could be welcomed into the very presence of God. Are you overwhelmed at the enormity of the solution? Are you overwhelmed at what it is that the Savior did? Are you overwhelmed at the unfathomably high price that Jesus paid? Some of us, some of us might look at this and find it hard to understand why it is that Jesus had to suffer all of this. Really, that's what we've got to see. We've got to understand the why behind it. If we are going to understand this overwhelmingly costly solution that God has presented, we've got to first understand our horrifically serious problem the consequence of our sin. Look at verse 27. That, that's, where, that's where Jesus points us. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. So as Jesus is heading to the cross, there are women who are mourning him. They're grieving. As he makes his way to Golgotha, a crowd is following along. There are women who are mourning and weeping for him. They see what he's experiencing physically, and so they grieve, and they should. They should. It would take a thoroughly deadened heart to not grieve over this scene. Well, what is happening here is overwhelmingly tragic. And yet, yet, Jesus stops and he speaks to these women and he points them away from his suffering and warns them of something far worse that is yet to come. What is he pointing them to? He's pointing them to the problem for which his suffering is the only solution. Verse 28, turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves, for your children. Look, 
The days are coming when they will say, blessed are the women without children, the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills, cover us. And what Jesus is saying here is that, that because the Jewish nation has rejected him as God's Messiah, they will now experience God's wrath. God was offering them mercy. They have rejected it. And so they will receive his justice. And they refused God's savior, his sacrifice in their place. And so now they must experience God's judgment. And Jesus says here that that judgment would be horrific. In part, Jesus is speaking here prophetically of the destruction of Jerusalem. You and I know what history tells us is that 40 years after this, after the Jews had, had briefly rebelled successfully against Rome, they'd had a brief victory, uh, the city of Jerusalem was very quickly laid siege to, attacked, defeated, utterly destroyed, and over a million Jews lost their lives. Just as Jesus had foretold in, in Luke 19, we read it not that long ago, uh, the temple itself was taken apart stone by stone, not one stone left upon another. Why? Because this, the Roman soldiers were seeking to regain the gold that had melted and, and run in between the cracks of the stones uh, when the temple complex was set ablaze. And then those stones were pushed over the edge of the temple mount. If you go to Israel, that's where we'll find them today still lying there. Later, the city was so completely annihilated by Emperor Hadrian that they claimed that you could run a plow through where the city had been. So here, Jesus warns these weeping women, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Weep for your children. And here's why. Here's why. Their greatest predicament was that they had rejected the Savior. They had rejected the Savior, and so as a result, they would now face God's judgment for their sin. And that time would be so terrible that mothers will, will wish that they had never had children. People will cry out. They'll be so desperate to have a place to hide that they will ask mountains to fall upon them and hills to hide them. But there'll be no shelter from that storm. God was not unmerciful in doing this. This was not what God wanted to do. Understand this. God, first of all, had told his people from the very beginning, before he even brought them into the promised land, he had warned them, he said, listen, you need to follow me, you need to stay with me, and I will bless you if you do, in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, and he says, but if you don't, if you turn away from you, this is what's going to take place. Judgment is going to happen. And when his people turned away from him anyway, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to
to call them back to himself, mercifully to, to offer them forgiveness, to offer them a return to God's good grace, to remind them that he was going to send them a Messiah, one who would be able to rescue them like they so desperately needed to be rescued. Know, too, that Jesus didn't want this for them. In fact, he warned them all. He told his followers just, <coughs> just back in Luke 21. He told them what to do in order to escape the judgment of that time. He told them that when you see Jerusalem surrounded, those in Judea must flee to the mountains. You know what? The early church, the early church paid attention to what Jesus said. They did what Jesus told them to do, and they escaped, and they survived. But understand, understand this. The really big problem isn't what happened to Jerusalem in AD 70. Uh, the really big problem is what AD 70 is merely a foreshadow of. Look at verse 31. Look what Jesus says there. He says, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What Jesus is saying here is basically, you think this is bad? <laughs> this is nothing compared to what's coming. That's the warning that he is making. What Jesus is saying is that the consequence of not turning to him, of not finding salvation in him, in not following him, the consequence of that is not just the Roman siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, as awful as that was. And no, that was just a preview of the consequence of not following Jesus. The ultimate consequence of not following Jesus, of not receiving his mercy, of rejecting his forgiveness, is that you will remain solely liable for all your sin. And one day, one day we will all be held accountable by God himself. And we will not be held accountable according to our standard of right or wrong, but rather according to God's perfect standard of absolute righteousness. And friend, let me tell you, if you haven't figured it out, that is a standard that none of us will meet. None of us will measure up to that. And it will bring a penalty that none of us wants to pay. Eternal hell. That's a big problem. That's a big problem. And big problems require big solutions. That is why Jesus went to the cross. That's why he suffered all that he suffered. You see, the day is coming when God will bring complete and final judgment. When God will set right every wrong and he will punish every sin. We like to think of that, don't we? What we should remember is that if we are not in Christ, that, that includes us. We're the wrong that will be set right. We are the sin that will be punished. That's bad news for those who are not in Christ. But you don't 
have to be in that position. You don't have to face that judgment. You can find shelter in Christ. You can turn to Christ. That's why Jesus did what he did. If we will put our hope in Christ, God will not judge us because he has already poured out his wrath for all our sin upon the Savior. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all on our behalf. That's why we call him Savior. That's why I urge you to turn to him, to trust him with your life. Big problems require big solutions. But you know what? Big solutions elicit big responses. So let me ask this. What should our response be to what Jesus has done for us? How should we respond? I want to be very clear. I am not asking you how it is that you can earn or deserve his forgiveness because you can't. Okay? None of us can. None of us deserve his mercy. We cannot earn his forgiveness. No, no, no. What I'm talking about is how then ought we to respond to the forgiveness that he has granted to us? You know, the only response that is fitting for what Christ has done for us is that we would surrender ourselves, our lives, to Christ. Big problems bring big solutions. Big solutions demand big responses. What you and I need to do is we need to respond the way that Jesus actually commanded us to respond. This isn't just a thing, well, if you want to, but this is something that Jesus laid out from the very beginning in, in Mark chapter 8. You remember this passage in Mark 8 uh, where Jesus calls the crowds and his disciples to himself and he says this, if anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to be my follower, if anyone wants to find salvation in me, what is that going to look like? He says, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What is Jesus getting at? What is he pointing to? Well, well, he's pointing to the same thing that Paul points to in Galatians 2.20. It's a change in how we live, that we no longer live for self, but now we live for Christ. Uh, Paul there in Galatians 2.20 talks about the fact that he has been crucified with Christ. He says, and I no longer live. Paul says, listen, this is how it works in my life. There's really no me to live anymore because I was crucified with Christ. And he says, the life I now live in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God. In other words, it's no longer me who's calling the shots, but now I live my life for Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. 
What Paul is saying is that those who respond to that gift of forgiveness, we respond by no longer living life in pursuit of our own agenda, no longer living to satisfy our flesh and our self, but now turning away from that sin that has and we have been so prone to get entangled in and embracing the mercy of God. The mercy of God did not come to us cheaply, purchased by the sacrifice of Jesus' life. The mercy of God that was given in order to change us, not merely to indulge us. First Peter chapter one, Peter says this. He says, we were redeemed from our empty way of life, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. The grace of God does not come cheaply, but it came to us. It came at the cost of the blood, the very life of Jesus Christ. And what does it accomplish? Well, it redeems us from our empty way of life. It does not redeem us to continue in that empty way of life, but it redeems us out of it. In other words, what he's talking about here is that God's grace comes freely to us but it also comes to us bringing change. Paul warns us in Romans chapter 2. He warns us that we must not despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience. We must not despise what it is that God has done, disrespect it, devalue it. He says, by not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. You see, God's kindness is offered to us not so that we could continue along a path of destruction and sin, but that we would be set free from that path you see, we are set free from sin, not set free to sin. God loves us. God loves us, so he will not leave us to rot in our sin. He confronts us. That doesn't always feel good, does it? Have you been confronted over sin lately? That can be hard, can it? Yet is that not the most loving thing that someone can do for us? That's why God confronts us over our sin and he convicts us of our sin. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. Friends, if you have not experienced God confronting you or convicting you over your sin lately, that should scare you. I know you well enough to know it's not because you've run out of sin. It's not because you're all good and God just looks at you and thinks there's nothing there to fix. It's because you have allowed your heart to become hardened. If you are not experiencing conviction over your sin, that should scare you and should cause you to turn to him and to ask him to speak bluntly and boldly to you. 
should cause you to, to cling to him and to cry out as David did, God, show me. Show me, Lord. Show me what's in my heart. the cross all that Jesus suffered that is God's big solution that solves for us a problem so big the problem of the consequence of our sin that, that honestly there is no other solution there is none Acts 4.12 tells us that the salvation is found in no one else. There is no other way to get salvation, to get forgiveness. It's that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which they must be saved. It is, it's Jesus. It's only Jesus. This world doesn't like that answer, does it? Why? Why is it only Jesus? Because he was the only perfect sacrifice. He was the only sinless one willing to take our sin. Only Jesus. Only Jesus suffered for sins once for all, the righteous, for me, the unrighteous. a big problem with an even bigger solution. So the question is, what will be our response? How will we respond to what he has done? Will you reject or will you receive this costly gift that he has given? Will you choose to be accountable before him for your own sin or to be forgiven and cleansed of it by the Savior. Choose mercy, friend. <laughs> Choose mercy. And will you treasure it? Will you see that this is such an enormous gift that he has given that you will respond to it with your life? Or will you despise the riches of his kindness? Surrender your life. Surrender your living. Choose to allow the Savior to live in you and through you to free you from the old way. to live to his glory. Let's pray. Will you stand with me? Father, we we have a hard time comprehending any of this. I do. I pray that you would you'd open our minds and that even as we go away from here, we would ponder what it is that you did, what it is you embraced, what it is you suffered and sacrificed.
for our sake. That we would understand that you who knew no sin became sin. And that we would understand that you did it, that we might become the righteousness of God. That we might respond to you. Receiving forgiveness. Surrendering our lives. Living for your glory. Living for your honor. Letting you live through us. Work that in us, Lord. Change us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.